All right, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is episode number two, and we're talking about high blood pressure today. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I'm a family medicine resident here in Southern California, joined by Dr. Baraki. I'm an internal medicine resident in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Good. How you doing today, buddy? Fantastic. Uh, just finished training a little while ago. Feeling a little bit sore coming back from my vacation, but doing all right. You'll notice that Austin is replete with the Strongest Shall Survive t-shirt. Kudos to Bill Starr. We'll yep. Cheers, cheers to, to him. Cheers to Bill. <laughs> what are we sipping on over there, Dr. Baraki? This is a glass of Four Roses, single barrel. What about you? Excuse me. This yeah. is uh, Michter's, also single barrel. Uh, I'd also like to point out that I am wearing a collared shirt because I want to be a, a, a fancy for the internet. This is not Instagram Live anymore, so wearing a shirt is more appropriate. Touche, <laughs> touche. Okay, so we have a information-packed episode for you guys today. A um, lot of data, a lot of uh, case study kind of things and, and uh, practical application uh, uh, things when it comes to high blood pressure. And then we had a really, really uh, big response today to our Q&A. Uh, our call for questions rather. So we'll try to get to as many of them as possible. And it does seem like doing a Q&A uh, specific episode uh, might be in the cards for next week, which actually oh. is good because it'll give us a, uh, or uh, a few weeks rather, to actually give us uh, some time to actually write this high blood pressure. Or, or Q&A episodes in the future. Q&A episodes, excuse me. Yes. Also, yes. I'd like to say that this podcast is sponsored by Gains RX. Gains RX. <laughs> For all your peri-workout needs, go to barbellmedicine.com. <laughs> Big pharma over there. Yeah, no, Michelle. I've sold out. I've sold out. I have no more credibility. Collared shirt. I've got dinosaurs in the back with the supplement. I don't know. Gains RX. Gains RX. It'll cure your high blood pressure. <laughs> yes. Yes. Tincture of tincture of uh, Gains RX will help. Just, just dilute it with a thousand parts water and homeopathic curative treatment. That's right. That's right. Uh, okay. So... Dr. Baraki, we're going to curbside you here first with what is the definition of high blood pressure, which is also known as hypertension. So if you do hear us refer to hypertension, it's high blood pressure. Dr. Britton, I'm sorry. It just sometimes you can't simplify it anymore. It's just the jargon that's going to come out of our mouths at certain points, you know? Mm -hmm. So so it's incredibly common, super common, something like a third of people in the U.S. are thought to have it. I looked up the epidemiology, so you couldn't stump me on that this time. And uh, the definitions of it have actually, um, they've, they've kind of been in flux over the past several years. And that's mainly because we want to be able to define it in a way that kind of helps us guide treatment so that we know what is the best blood pressure for people to be at. So it's kind of complicated. So, you know, a normal blood pressure typically is the one that most people have heard of as being like less than 120 over 80 for most people. Um, recent definitions have have kind of tried to grade it a little bit so that the next stage up anywhere between 120 to 139 for the systolic or the top number and 80 to 89 for the bottom number, the diastolic uh, pressure are uh, called prehypertension. So that's basically a, a pressure that's not normal, but we're not really calling it high blood pressure yet. It's kind of a pre-high blood pressure state where you might need to start thinking about, is there something going on that's going to lead to this person developing high blood pressure uh, in the long run? Sure. And then, yeah, are you going to say something? Yeah, so I think, you know, 
one interesting thing that you would, you know, you explain to your patient. So you have a person who comes in and they're, you, let's say they're 130 over 85. So that's the systolic blood pressure uh, when the heart is contracting uh, over the diastolic blood pressure is when the heart is relaxing. And they say, you say, hey, you know, it looks like you're, you have prehypertension. What, you know, to you as a clinician, what does that mean? And then what do you, what do you think that your patient would think about getting labeled now as prehypertensive, which is going to be carried forward on all of their medical charts going forward? Yes. Um, I would, I would say that it's probably, if I'm seeing this patient for the first time and I see that number there, um, it's probably not worth labeling that patient yet. And that's because of the intricacies of diagnosis of high blood pressure, which I'll get into in a little bit after we wrap up these definitions. So, um, because it's more complicated than just seeing the number once and saying, Oh, your blood pressure is high. We're going to have say you have high blood pressure. And that's really a result of the fact of just how like labile it is day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, how it can go up or down very rapidly throughout the day. Um, I imagine that our blood pressures right now since starting the podcast are probably a little higher than they were just before we started, just because, you know, there's a little bit of maybe a little performance anxiety as soon as you turn the cameras on. You know, you got the bright lights on your face over there. <laughs> Certainly performance anxiety on the side of the camera. <laughs> so, all right. So beyond prehypertension, when you get up to the 139 over 89 at the high end of the both of the both of the pressure numbers there, um, then you get into hypertension or officially high blood pressure land. And so they actually break that down into two different stages. And that's mainly for like kind of research purposes um, so that you can kind of stage people and then kind of correlate that to how they do in the long run. So stage one high blood pressure, stage one hypertension would be from a pressure of 140 to 159 for the top number over 90 to 99 on the bottom number. And one or both of those numbers could be elevated. You could have isolated systolic hypertension just if the top number is high but the bottom number is normal and vice versa. And those can have different kind of prognostic significance in different populations um, where the top number seems to matter a lot more in terms of long-term risk in older folks and the bottom number seems to be more ominous in a younger person if it's elevated. Um, and then stage two is basically anything over 160 over 100. And that's where stuff really you know, starts to get a little more concerning, particularly if it stays that way over the long term. And so those are kind of the definitions of what most people think of when they're discussing high blood pressure. Um, but to, to make this a little bit more complicated is that there's a bunch of different types of high blood pressure to be aware of. Um, that pressure that we're measuring, that we're describing, is when they put the cuff around your arm and they measure the pressure in your arteries. Um, that's basically your systemic arterial circulation. So what pumps out of the heart goes through your arteries and everywhere else uh, to feed your body, basically. There's a completely separate circulation in your lungs. That's called the pulmonary circulation. Some patients have something called pulmonary hypertension, where the blood pressure out in their body is okay, but the pressure in the blood vessels in their lungs is really high. Um, that's a totally separate topic outside the scope of this podcast. Would like to say just if you happen to have a certain type of pulmonary hypertension that you can get Viagra, and I just, you know, <laughs> I think it you don't want to have it, but if you have to have it, you want that. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm not poking fun. I'm just saying that that would be, you know, that's the one to have. So all right, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because mainly because all the others come from worse conditions, like they come from bad heart failure, or they come from bad COPD. Exactly. Exactly. So that's okay. All right. I think I'm with you on it. So, and you get Viagra. Uh, I'm just, you know. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that too. <laughs> All right. So, and then, so, how so, would so you, we're going to, yeah, sorry. Okay. So how would you diagnose somebody with hypertension? You, you see the person in the office, the first time they come in, they're 150 over 90. What do you, what's, what's your kind of clinical, clinical uh, move there? Yeah. So if it's the first time I've seen this person, it's still probably not okay 
to say that they truly have hypertension. And I've had this happen with patients before. Sure. Um, so really, the, the the actual like gold standard best way to diagnose somebody with high blood pressure is what's called ambulatory blood pressure monitor. Mm-hmm. What's ambulatory just means walking basically. So it means that you're conti- you're measuring someone's blood pressure periodically throughout a day as they're out walking around in the world. So people will they'll come up come to a special place if they have access to it, they'll pick up the machine, hook it up to themselves, they'll go about their next day or whatever day they hook it up for 24 hours. It'll take a slew of measurements throughout the day and overnight. Um, to measure kind of the trends day and night of their blood pressures. And basically, if you come back to the clinic and you look at the results of what the machine spits out, and the average over that 24 hours is about 130 over 80 or higher, then at that point, it's a meets a diagnostic criteria to be labeled as having high blood pressure. Right. Um, basically, you've look- just taken more values, so you have a better gestalt of, does this person actually have high blood pressure, or is this just an isolated thing? Because a lot of different things can give you acute high blood pressure. Yeah. So the most common complaint people say, "Oh, this cuff's not the right size," because they've they've heard about that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, or they'll say, "I get nervous around doctors," which is not, you know, I think that's overreported from the patient population, but does mm-hmm. certainly happen frequently enough that that's a thing. Um, you can have the wrong size cuff. It can be in the wrong position. They're, the machines can may not be calibrated. In fact, I would make the argument that very few. <laughs> so the, if you look in the literature on this, very few actual uh, machines in the hospital where they actually have technicians who service these things at regular yep. intervals are calibrated to the standard. And mm-hmm. so your ambulatory clinic that you go to is even less likely to have calibrated machines. Yeah. So you could be in so that's. Pain. You could, you could be, you know, these are all things that could cause a benign elevation in blood pressure. Yeah. And, and all those things, there's a, there's several others that I'll mention in a minute, but basically that make basically the, the typical measurement when you walk into a clinic, they slap a cuff on your arm, they measure it while they're asking you your medical history and stuff like that. Really a not ideal way to get someone's true blood pressure. So the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is the gold standard. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't have access to it. I've used it myself for a few patients who I suspected that they had issues with the measurements than when they came to the office. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the kind of patients that I have access to use that in. Uh, the next best one would be home blood pressure monitoring, where they take a physical cuff machine home, mm-hmm. and you ask them to take, say, 12 measurements over the course of a day or a couple days, 12 plus, anything like that, and then they bring it back. And you know, at home, they don't have the anxiety. The, what, you know, the, the, the issue that goes away is one of either called what's called uh, white coat hypertension. And it's where patients come in and whether they feel the anxiety or not, just being in the doctor's office makes their blood pressure go up. They don't always report anxiety. I actually had a female recently who came in and she was trying to get cleared for a military deployment and her blood pressures kept measuring 150, 150, 150. She's like, I feel fine, but I have this home blood pressure machine. Every time I check it at home, it's 118 or 120 or something like that. So it went up a significant degree every time she came in. So I said, I'm gonna hook you up with this ambulatory blood pressure monitor. So she went home, had it measured for 24 hours and it came back totally normal. She was signed off and good to go. But the reason you did that though is because, so even if she brought you in a report of her home ambulatory blood pressure monitor, you aren't sure of the calibration of that machine. So you're gonna use your own, which you are gonna trust in any event. We work yeah. with what we have, so okay. Yeah. So right. those are those are the two best methods, basically. The, the the worst method is the one that everyone gets when they show up to the office is slap a cuff on your arm and get it checked. And there's a very specific way to measure it. The patient has to be seated, feet up flat on the floor. They have to have been quiet for a while, like calm. You don't ask them questions during it. Ideally, they haven't smoked or taken caffeine or actually taken any stimulants. I personally have had high blood pressure readings when I've taken Sudafed and then ended up going to a doctor's office for, for a visit. 
Um, yeah. Uh, the cuff has to be the right size. It has to be positioned at the level of the heart. They can't be wearing tight T-shirts, muscles T-shirts, things like that. Device has to be calibrated. And you need to take more than one reading at a time. You can't take one, see it's 150, and say, oh, you got high blood pressure. Right. So it's very complicated. Which is, you know, and we will definitely address this later on uh, a little bit more in depth. But the well, one of the uh, studies we'll definitely talk about is called the SPRINT trial. It was basically a study that came out uh, uh, very recently that suggested we should maybe treat blood pressure a little bit more stringently um, yeah. you know, to a lower goal versus saying, oh, you're lower than 150, then that's fine. Like, so let's treat even lower, use more medications. Um, one of the criticisms that people will say, yeah, like, they're like, well, you know, they had people sitting quietly in a room <laughs> prior to measurement. They right. took it three times that, you know, all these things. And it's like, yeah, but that's how you're supposed to take blood pressure. Yeah. If, if Unfortunately, that's not how it's done in the real world. That's exactly. the problem with, that's the problem with the generalizability of the study, how well you can apply it to the general population Correct. out there. Yeah. Which just says that your clinic should do a better job. Yeah. Um, everyone should. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's diagnosis. That's definitions and diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So what would be if you had to, all right, so let's say you have somebody you're worried about them <clears throat> actually having high blood pressure based on, you know, they've had two readings or their ambulatory blood pressure has been is high. And so you're thinking, all right, what uh, sort of uh, uh, risk factors would predispose? Let's back up, actually. What sort of bad things are you worried about from somebody having high blood pressure? Why, why, why even treat it? It's just a yeah. number, so. Right, right. It, you, most patients don't have symptoms, so they always look at you I'm like quiz, yeah. quizzically when you say you need to treat them. They're like, what? I feel good. I'm, I feel no fine. problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So blood pressure primarily, um, you like run-of-the-mill high blood pressure out in the population is a chronic problem. It's, a, it's something that causes problems over the very long term. It's hard to see significant benefits in terms of the research in lowering patients' blood pressures in very short-term studies, right. with the one exception of what are called hypertensive emergencies, when your blood pressure is so high that it's actively damaging your eyes, your brain, your kidneys, your lungs, things like that, which is a totally different situation. That's ICU-level stuff. Regular clinics, it's a long-term problem. So when patients' blood pressures are, are um, elevated above the normal range over a long period of time, we start worrying about basically a pathologic thickening of the heart muscle that can result to, uh, in, over the long period of time, can result in worsening heart disease, can result in congestive heart failure. Those are common ones. Heart attacks, coronary artery disease kind of go along with high blood pressure, along with several other risk factors. Uh, strokes, it's the number one risk factor for having a stroke. Um, and it can also predispose to, among other things, chronic eye disease and chronic kidney disease as well, can result from chronically um, uncontrolled high blood pressure it can result in end, basically what we call end stage renal disease when your kidneys basically can can do essentially less than like zero percent of their job and that's when patients end up getting hooked up to a dialysis machine three days a week for the rest of their life right so yeah. lots of very bad complications can come from chronic high blood pressure that's not controlled yeah and you know so one of the um, we as physicians we like recommendations given in general we like recommendations given by these big consensus panels or consortiums where a bunch of experts come together and they like tell us what to do because you know uh, you and i were pouring through the literature just to kind of make sure that we had um, most of the stuff covered uh you know nothing changed since we were pimped last time in clinic or whatever um it would be very difficult to make sense of all the data out there without sort of the recommendations. And so it's, it's very useful to have those. So, it, all right, so let's start here. So the uh, JNC, the Joint National Commission for Blood Pressure uh, 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 Treatment, they, uh, JNC8 comes out many years ago and says, look, if your blood pressure is over 140 systolic or 90 diastolic, 
well, your mortality rate goes up something by a th- like a third if you're mm-hmm. that's untreated. Yep. But then they turn around and say on their next <laughs> recommendation, JNC eight, which came out you know a few years ago, eh, it doesn't matter. Don't don't treat one fifty is the new goal if you don't have diabetes, particularly particularly in older people. Yeah, yeah. So so. You know, we have these recommendations, but they always change. So some people will take that as, ah, doctors don't know anything. And it's like, well, we're, all we're doing is refining our hypothesis. Our hypothesis is that treating, treating this stuff prevents all the stuff that Dr. Baraki was just mentioning and ultimately allows people to live a more fulfilling life and longer, healthier life. Yeah. Um, but as we get new evidence, we have to continue to refine our, our recommendations. So um, I think that was a good you know, overview of what can happen if you have elevated blood pressure. What would be, um, if you had to, you know, you're talking to a patient and you think that they have elevated blood pressure, you're thinking, what risk factors do they have? Uh, so if you had to give somebody a 30 second, these are the things that could possibly cause high blood pressure from a risk factor perspective, what would you, what would you tell them? Yeah. So age is a big one. Blood pressure tends to get up, particularly the top number, the systolic number tends to go up as people get older. Uh, obesity, high body fat percentages tend to, uh, definitely contribute toward this through a very great number of different mechanisms can result in people's blood pressures going up, um, including a secondary one to uh, having being obese is obstructive sleep apnea is another one. And that's a nice one to diagnose because it's easily reversible. You put somebody on CPAP for their sleep apnea, and then all of a sudden their blood pressures gets better, um, assuming that it was co- coming from the sleep apnea and not as much from their obesity. Um, family history, genetic factors are always a big role. Like if their whole family's always had really high blood pressures, there's nothing, you know, that's just in their genes, you know, and, and, and it's not going to be easily reversed. Um, race is another one. Uh, African-Americans definitely more prone to having high blood pressure. That's actually particularly difficult to control in some situations. And then a few other ones include, um, anybody who has basically a reason for having like, um, kidney disease that can contribute to high blood pressure. And it can actually be the result of high blood pressure, too. So it's kind of a nasty two-way street there. Um, People who uh, use too much alcohol, excessive alcohol intake, can result in high blood pressure. Smoking, physical inactivity is a big one, a very big one, um, and super common. Obviously, it goes hand-in-hand with a bunch of these other ones we've mentioned. And then, um, again, along with this goes diabetes. And kind of the causal mechanisms, which causes which and how they interact has not really been teased out very well. But these are all kind of risk factors and things that go together very commonly. We see it all the time. Yep. That's okay. I think that was uh, very, very, you, you got them all, honey, you got them all. You, so <laughs> you, you, you know, as an aside, I only bring comedy here. I bring no actual knowledge, but, but comedy. <laughs> I believe, I think your mom actually commented on the blog and she's our first podcast. I'm so she, proud. Yeah, right. And I, was like, oh, I just imagine my grandmother, if she knew how to use the internet. Joy, you did such a good job, buddy. Um, so very briefly, so age, yes, increases your risk of high blood pressure, mainly because uh, the vessels get stiffer. Very simple explanation. That's kind of the main thing as far as why that's uh, I, you know, a thousand page article on yep. <laughs> exactly how that, that occurs. Obesity, yep. yes, increased fat mass tends to uh, release pro-inflammatory uh, signals uh, into the vasculature, which ultimately causes the uh, vessels to constrict in addition to other uh, path, uh, pathophysiology. Uh, sleep apnea, I agree with you. It's, that's my favorite thing to diagnose in the yes, clinic. Yes, same. It's Maybe, so satisfying. <laughs> it's, it's so satisfying because you actually feel like you're helping people, and I have it, so it's great. <laughs> so, yeah, so think, you know, it, even if you're not a medical practitioner, so let's say you're working with somebody, uh, you're a coach, this is, you know, 
or you're, and if you're a coach, I feel like we should do a study just to see if you're a strength and conditioning coach, like the prevalence of OSA. The odds, yeah, the odds that you have it, yes, it's very high. higher. Um, so let's say you have a client; they're always tired all the time. They complain of depression, for instance, or they have a headache in the morning, and then all you know, they also report they've got high blood pressure. I mean, all these things are like super common. Uh, yeah. uh, with sleep apnea and then you ask them hey has anybody told you that you stop breathing when you sleep you know you have to ask <laughs> if they have a bed partner too because if they don't then you know yeah they'll say no way right. right um and so yeah uh getting a sleep study that's the way to do it and now they just yeah. said that home sleep studies are actually you know you valid can, yeah yeah yeah, so yeah. same thing home. same thing this is an, also an aside with the other article i wrote on testosterone that's a that's a very big deal to think about when you're working up somebody for hypogonadism or low testosterone testosterone <laughs> Testosterone. <laughs> um, yeah, so sleep apnea, and you know it's great too because you get to wear a mask, and it's I feel like Bane when I put it on. It's like no one cared about me till I put on the mask. <laughs> this is great. Um, yes, and then alcohol can cause uh, sort of autonomic uh, changes, so you know vasoconstriction in addition to multiple other things. And so yeah, I think you nailed it. All right, so look. There's two different ways or two different broad categories as far as treatment. You can either do drugs or no drugs. Uh, so as we would uh, more sophisticated uh, like refer to, non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic. So mm -hmm. non-pharmacologic, we can do diet, we can do life, you know, exercise, we can do uh, other lifestyle modifications. And the best one, in your opinion, also based on evidence, what would be the best non-pharmacologic treatment? The best one would be weight reduction. Yes. Losing, losing some of the excess body fat would be the biggest bang for your buck, and it's incremental per amount of weight that you lose, which is the nice thing. It keeps it keeps giving you a great effect as you keep losing more weight. Yeah, it's like per 10 kilos you lose, you can lose. It's like 20, 20 millimeters of mercury diastolic or uh, systolic that comes down, which is on average greater than any of the, the tools we use to actually lower blood pressure, except for the stuff in the hypertensive emergency. Emergency land, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it, it's just interesting that, you know, I guess because we're so bad at getting people to lose weight, at, not you and I, <laughs> but in, in general, um, you know that's that's necessarily why why that's not uh, uh, always uh, successful. Um, yeah. All right. So, what about exercise? How's exercise do? Exercise is so. Here's a caveat with the exercise piece: is that as with most exercise-related literature, it is generally pretty crappy. Um, there's plenty of research in there on aerobic uh, endurance type exercise, which can do reasonably well. It seems like the upper end that you can expect from the data on this stuff is like upwards of like 10 millimeters of mercury on the systolic end. But that's pretty aggressive. And that usually that would be expected to result from higher intensity aerobic work, which is actually the data shows that if you're going to do the aerobic type, uh, the endurance activity, that higher intensity stuff works better, that they've gotten at least as good of results in less time doing some higher intensity stuff. Um, of course, just like getting patients to um, work towards losing weight, getting them to do very high intensity uh, conditioning stuff can also be a challenge sometimes. Because a lot of the patients that me and you see in our clinics are not necessarily the same population that are listening to our podcast, the highly motivated people who are already interested in training, they're already bought into this, stuff like that. They're people that we're trying to get them to make the first step towards a lifestyle change. So some of these things can be really difficult and you have to, you, you kind of have to hold their hand and walk them up to, walk them up to the door to say like, all right, we're going to start out with some sort of, uh, you know, conditioning type work. And then we have to kind of work up the intensity from there as best as you can. Yeah. And so that's what we get from the aerobic literature. The resistance training literature uh, is much more limited, unfortunately, 
However, the poor quality and limited resistance training literature that we do have shows that we can get at least as good of blood pressure reduction from it as from aerobic training. Yes. This is perhaps might come as a surprise to some of the listeners. Um, <clears throat> mainly because everyone thinks that lifting heavy weights, you see someone lifting heavy weights, you see their face turn purple, you see the veins bulge out of their forehead, they say, oh, that can't be good for you, you're going to stroke out, man. I'm right here. <laughs> I, don't have to, I know I turn red yeah. and purpley. Yeah, we've got we've had some good deadlift faces of ourselves, and so that people look at that and they say, "How is that going to make my blood pressure go down?" And the answer to that is, it's complicated. <laughs> this stuff is not this stuff is not as simple as you look at somebody and you say, "Hey, their blood pressure is probably three hundred over one hundred fifty right now," which might be the case acutely. In yeah, in deadlift. But yeah, exactly. But um, but in the long run, it actually absolutely does lower patient's blood pressures. Yeah, so one of the things for sure that training does, uh, and you know, so Austin actually said that during lifting, blood pressures are routinely in the 300 systolic, uh, particularly if you're using a Valsalva maneuver. Uh, but one of the adapt uh, adaptive sort of responses to that in the arterial uh, uh, system is that you get more elasticity. Effectively, the, the vessels are better at dilating and responding to that increased pressure. Um, so again, the body is complicated and nuanced yeah. and will adapt. And yes, you do see good blood pressure reduction with resistance training. Um, you know, one of the questions that we won't answer from the Q and a was additionally like, uh, uh, you know, what do you, how do you think that resistance training plays into weight loss and which ultimately, if you can get somebody compliant with resistance training, my whole, my whole take on this has been that if you can get somebody compliant with resistance training, particularly something that is regularly showing them that they're progressing, Yep. But you can actually get them to comply with the nutritional intervention a little bit easier too. It's a which, compliance tool for sure. Exactly. Which ultimately can produce the <sighs> reduction in blood pressure that we're looking for um, yep. without having to use medications. And um, I think that it also should be said that we're I'm not against using medications when needed because I know that if I can't lower their blood pressure versus you know lifestyle interventions, that I'm ultimately doing them a disservice to not get yes. medication. Yeah, this is something that's super important is that not everybody can achieve normal blood pressure through these lifestyle measures alone. That is um, that is just the actual truth of it. I know there's going to be people who want to go all natural and stuff like that, but those people, eventually, some of them are going to keep coming back to the office and their blood pressure readings are going to be high, 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 even if we do it through all the proper methods and everything like that. They're, I've had this before. They're super resistant to starting even a single blood pressure medicine when I know that with their blood pressure being 165, one, one blood pressure medicine alone is not going to be enough to get them where they need to be. And the thing is that for us who have seen the complications of long-term, poorly controlled high blood pressure, the benefits of taking a medicine like this so far outweigh the risks in a situation when it can't be fixed through lifestyle measures alone that you need to take the damn medicine. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. And so, you know, some people say, well, you know, maybe it's the gluten. Or it's, the, <laughs> or, or it's too many carbs. And, and I yeah. don't say this tongue-in-cheek to like make a poke fun at these practitioners who, who are saying that. It's just that not only is that not the case, but if we're telling you that pharmacology, like chemically synthesized agents designed to do one thing, can't lower the blood pressure to a normal range, you, you think it's the gluten. Like, yeah. Or you think it's carbohydrates. And I'm not saying that those tools can't be helpful in the correct populations, but just not in this population. You, the medication needs to be there if you're going if you if you can't fix this uh, through lifestyle me measurements. So lifestyle lifestyle things, training and 
Oh, sorry. And to be and to be clear regarding the medicines, because I know both of us have run into this issue before, because high blood pressure is not usually a symptomatic condition. People treat it sometimes as something they treat it like an infection, really. They think right, that, right. oh, I took my blood pressure medicine and it's cured and I don't need to take blood pressure medicine anymore. Or they come to the office on their medicine and their blood pressure's fine. And so they say, Oh, my blood pressure is good. Why do I need the medicine? Well, it's fine because you're taking it. Exactly. Um, and and some others I've had who say, Oh, I don't take it unless I have symptoms which they don't know what the symptoms of that are. In fact, interestingly, there's some data showing that like headaches, which people headaches. think okay. cause high blood pressure, not a thing. Yeah. Um, so if you're in pain, if you're in pain, your blood pressure could be elevated. That is true. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, so it's funny when you go see a patient and they have high blood pressure, and then if you have to uh, uh, precept them with uh, one of the attendings, for instance, and let's say their blood pressure is 180 over something. So you've yeah. got systolics through the roof. Mm -hmm. uh, the what's the first thing the attending is going to ask you? Uh, do they have a headache? Yeah, because, right. So, but it's inversely and, and, related. It's, yeah, and do you want to send them to the ER? Right. To which the answer is almost always no. No, because, yeah, right. okay. Anyway, all right, so let's get back on point here. So weight loss, if somebody is overweight, can almost certainly uh, is probably one of the best options we have for, for, for reducing blood pressure. Training, um, aerobic if needed, uh, and resistance training. And I'll make this nuanced argument, and I'll make this very clear. If someone is on the uh, starting strength novice progression or similar, I hopefully they're switching over to the, nov the starting strength novice progression because I think it's the best one out there for novices. Would I have them do conditioning? And the answer to that is maybe. Uh, the people who I would have them do it are the obese people who mm -hmm. will benefit from it, and the risks are sorry, the benefits outweigh the risks. Um, and so what I mean by that, if if you're 20, 30, 40 pounds overweight, all right, just the training. And then the dietary change is going to be enough for you that we're going to get a big, big effect uh, on your blood pressure, right? I don't think the conditioning is really going to add, you know, this, this, that's going to be the linchpin. Now, if you're 200 pounds overweight, well, this is a different situation, all mm -hmm. right? So we need to add in a little bit of conditioning. And if I had to pick something for them to do, it's going to be moderate or low to moderate intensity, steady state conditioning. And again, here's why everyone wants to jump on the high intensity interval training bandwagon. And I do think that short term data does support that use for certain uh, cases. However, you're thinking, let's say it's a 400 pound person. All right. They cannot achieve yeah. a, a true high intensity. Uh, yeah. That's thing one thing two. anything that's that's actually loading them is really compromising recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in addition to that, uh, um, you think about the risks of having them do interval sprints or mm -hmm. any sort of bounce. It's just not not a, a good tool to use in that situation. So I would have them it, do regular. It's ar it, it, it's arguably even impractical for them, given somebody who's. I mean, four hundred pound people are hardly ever highly trained, except for like the freaks and strongman, of course, who strongman. can be that big. Right? right. That's a different story. But four hundred pounds with 50% body fat is a different situation. There's completely untrained. They walking up the stairs maxes out their heart rate. So yeah, you can't get them to do truly high inter, high intensity interval work um, and and balance it out with resistance training, which is arguably going to give them at least as much benefit in multiple other areas of their lives. Yep. Yep. And and again, you know, I think that there's going to be some people who say, well, look, it's a relative intensity. It's hard for them. That means it's high intensity interval. And uh, look, there's this four week study that shows it's superior. And I'm like, yeah, I see what it says at four weeks. Okay. But let's go long term. That yeah. one, that data doesn't really exist. And, and the other thing is, too, let's consider the effect on training. I want this obese person to really love training. I want to make this for the rest of their life. Exactly. I want to make this a lifestyle change. And you know what? I think that 
having them do tr- like no shit high intensity interval training is more likely to compromise their ability to progress on a novice progression. Yep. Which is why I'm just gonna have them do low intensity stuff, sit them on a bike, 30 minutes. It, the the intensity should be such that they can speak comfortably in short to moderate length sentences, but not sing. Okay. Yeah. When they haven't felt the benefits of training yet because they're true novices, doing true high intensity work is just going to grind them into a fine dust and they're going to hate you and they're going to want to quit. Yep. Yep. If you don't have access to actual like an exercise bike or whatever, I wouldn't put them on the rower. One, the weight limit is such that. Yeah. Good well, point. <laughs> you, yeah. I, well, you know, the, look again, and, and I actually do, obviously I feel passionate about this between this and training older people. Um, but for a, an obese person, if you put them on a rower and the four and they break the rower, they're yeah. not coming back to your gym. Yep. All right. And so yep. you just you just ruined that. For what reason? All right. So and if you only have a sled, that's fine. Just have them walk at a comfortable mm-hmm. pace with an empty sled. It's a little, it, you know, or they can just walk. Yep. Or they can just walk again. Yeah, so, yeah. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. All right. So we're in agreement. So standard recommendation: if you're doing the linear progression and you have high blood, your and your client or you have high blood pressure. If you're obese, you can do conditioning. Let's keep it low intensity or start at one to two times per week, depending on your previous training experience. I'd start at 20 minutes per and then add slowly from there as you need. Okay. Yep. Maybe five minutes every two weeks. Go up from there. Yes, mm-hmm. it's intentionally slow to allow you to see progression on your training so that you keep, you keep training. Okay. Uh, if you're not obese, uh, sorry, if you're not like extreme, you know, extremely overweight, just don't do it. Just yeah. do the linear progression. You're not supposed to be gaining weight <laughs> anyway. Okay. Yep. And then after that, we can add conditioning in. We can work and worry about it later. Exactly. Okay. So that's the that's the training pearl brought to you by Git. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think that that's good for non – I mean, we can – you know, there are other things that show benefit from a non-pharmacologic standpoint. So uh, there's some evidence, for instance, that using like CoQ10 – or vitamin D or dark chocolate or uh, relaxation training. Well, yeah. all those things have some evidence. Um, where would you prescribe that to a patient or as a sort of adjunct treatment? Or would you just say, hey, if you want to try this out, you can't? What do you yeah, think so if, if they strike me as a real super neurotic personality with like majorly high levels of life stress, anxiety, stuff like that, I would probably recommend that to them to the degree that they have access to such things even if it's like find even if i end up finding some sort of like relaxation guided website for them and have them do that that's reasonable first step uh vitamin d i would prescribe to them if they were deficient i'd be really hard pressed to say you have high blood pressure because you're vitamin d deficient um so i don't think that that's going to be i mean usually it's not the sole cause of someone's high blood pressure but if they're deficient and i feel like they need replacement then i'll give them replacement coq10 i generally don't prescribe to most folks uh, yeah, an interesting aside on vitamin D is that everybody, you know, it's real hot. It's so hot right now. Um, Dr. Michael Holick, you know, after his vitamin D book and his all that, you know, there's a big to do about re- replacing vitamin D. And it is true that vitamin D uh, recommendations have been increasing year by year uh, slowly. It, the interesting thing is in this sort of training space we're in where people maybe aren't really, uh, they don't want to deal with us types. They don't like us. Uh, Doctors. Yeah. Doctors, yeah. they don't know yeah. anything. They're like, <laughs> well, I just have been taking five thousand IU's a day because yep. I heard it on a podcast. Mm-hmm. And there's so many problems with that. Just like starting at like, wait, you heard this on a podcast. You're not unsure of this person's training. You're you're unsure of this person's data set to recommend that. Why, why though? Um, yep. 
Yeah, so I think if you're going to start vitamin D, then by definition, you've already said, hey, look, I, I have vitamin D because I have a lab showing me that I'm, I'm deficient. And, and ultimately, that lab work guides how much vitamin D you take. There, We have evidence that shows if you're this low, like here's how much you should be taking, and you monitor yep. it. We, there's yep. all there's guidelines for this. So I think if you're going to go through the trouble of spending money and buying vitamin, a good vitamin D supplement, then get the cheap lab. You can even go to a Quest. It's like 10 bucks to get this lab draw or something. Yeah, yeah. So just monitor it. Just do it. Yeah, don't because <laughs> you don't want to be the person who gets hypervitaminosis D and like, you know, you've got calcium deposits in your muscles and you're like Yeah. I mean I've heard of a patient who was prescribed uh who I who I guess it was kind of an error on a couple fronts, but they ended up getting prescribed the fifty thousand units once a week regimen. Oh, the vitamin D two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fifty thousand units once a week and you do that for a set number of weeks and you stop. Somehow they ended up on it for long term. Oh. And then yeah, they ended up with all the bad problems from vitamin D toxicity basically. And if they so. would have gotten another vitamin D lab, I mean, it would yep. clearly would That's have it. shown. Yeah. So yep. if you're going to take the supplement, you got to monitor it. Yep. Um, other things, there's some evidence that melatonin may lower systolic blood pressure by like three, millig- mill- three millimeters of mercury, which is ultimately not significant, which interestingly enough leads us into our next discussion. Three millimeters of mercury <laughs> low- lowering on systolic blood pressure is not that great. That's a, yep. that's a, that's a, an error bar, right? Within the error range. Exactly. Before one, one second. So the only other ones to mention are if you're an alcoholic or you drink too much, you need to reduce oh, your alcohol. And intake. don't smoke you, cigarettes. Don't smoke. If you have sleep apnea, get a CPAP, stuff like that. Just other standard things that need to be mentioned. Of course. Correct. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, you didn't say like, make sure to go get acupuncture done on a regular basis. Yes, I would not ever say that to anybody for any reason. Well, that's my my <laughs> chi is out of line. This is why yeah. my blood pressure is elevated. Can't you see? I can. Yeah, yeah. Um, no. So, okay. All jokes aside, two three millimeters of mercury reduction in systolic blood pressure is an error bar. It may be statistically significant in studies, uh, uh, you know, assessing like melatonin's effect on blood pressure, but it's certainly not clinically significant because again, we don't even know if the uh, blood pressure machine is even calibrated to within three millimeters of mercury, which brings up an interesting question. If you take salt out of the diet, salt, the villainous uh, uh, addition to foodstuffs, how much can you lower your blood pressure by? Yeah, so the evidence that, that I found seemed to suggest that getting yourself below around two and a half grams a day of sodium can reduce things by about two to eight, anywhere, somewhere in that range. So it could be on the two end, it's essentially insignificant. On the eight range, it's more significant. And that is in recognition of maybe a small proportion of people who are deemed to be salt sensitive. Um, and then, and then, um, yeah, there is, there is lots of variation and errors in the way we measure things. So I'm not saying that we're going to single salt out and, and at the expense of all the other ones where we said that exercise gets, can get you 10. That's awesome. And, but salt can get you eight. That's garbage. But just the data that we have on the sodium relationship to high blood pressure in patients who have healthy kidneys is not as good as, um, as a lot of us have thought. I mean, I remember hearing, um, a cardiologist were telling a patient, you are to eat zero salt, no salt, absolutely none. And I'm like, that is not compatible with life. That you cannot do bad. that. <laughs> yeah. Bad. Yep. What? So, all right. It, this is, this is, this is my pet. I, salt has been my baby as of, as of late. Um, so first thing I want to define sodium and salt are not the same thing. Okay, sodium is a, a, a you know a chemical structure. It's Na plus it's an em- element. It is an emulent. It's an element. 
<laughs> it's an element. And then so, uh, table salt, uh, sodium chloride, <clears throat> is obviously a, a chemical. Now, if I want somebody to take in, let's say, uh, the current World Health Organization, which is the we call it the WHO, or the American Heart Association, AHA, these two big multi, you know, huge uh, uh, entities both say, you know, you should be taking in 2,000 to 2,400 milligrams of salt per day or less than if you're the AHA. So that's 2,400 milligrams of sodium, all right, not salt. So of salt, that would be approximately uh, three and a half to four grams of salt, but they're talking about sodium, all right? So it's important to kind of understand this distinction that they're not the same things and that in order to get uh, 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 the same amount of salt, uh, sorry, the correct amount of salt that it's actually, uh, the correct amount of sodium that you need more salt. Now here's where it gets really interesting. So Austin referred to a select group of patients um, who may be salt sensitive, uh, and we can't test for that, all right? There's no test. We're trying to come up with a test. We don't know. And when I say we, I don't just mean Dr. Baraki and I. I mean the medical community as a whole. We haven't figured out any sort of test that tells us if someone is really salt sensitive or not. And no, Virginia, the answer is not just stop adding salt to your food and see if you lose weight. That's not. That doesn't mean you're salt sensitive. Uh, and not lose also, weight, but lower blood pressure. Yeah, both. Either. N neither oh, okay. of those. Would, yeah. Well, neither of yeah, us yeah. would tell you because other things change too. Okay. Yes. Um, so, for instance, if you spontaneously reduce calories, guess what's going to happen to your salt, your sodium intake? It's going to go up. This has been shown in study after study after study. There's really no arguing on, on that point. So um, if you, yeah, let's eat less salt, the sodium, you know, maybe that's not a bad recommendation if you're trying to spontaneously reduce calories. But that does mean that data that hasn't controlled for caloric intake um, is, is not maybe the best. Uh, in fact, when we see uh, studies on just lowering sodium alone, we don't really see a good change in blood pressure, except for the people that we think have this salt-sensitive uh, genetic makeup. And again, we can't really identify that. So even if you go on the cruise and you gain 20 pounds because you you know overate for five or six days and you come back, that doesn't mean you're salt-sensitive necessarily. Because your ankles swell up when you have a bachelorette party doesn't mean you're salt-sensitive. We can't tell you if you are or not. If you have elevated blood pressure and you tend to eat less salt and your caloric intake stayed the same, uh, but your blood pressure went way down, maybe that's you. Maybe that's a reasonable alternative. Okay, mm -hmm. I would do that before prescribing a medication. More nuanced and more interesting to me than that, however, is does lowering salt actually improve medical outcomes? And the answer to that is, uh, and it, it, that screech you just heard is the sound of just n the lack of confidence and <laughs> yep. uh, th this sort of impending uh, poo storm that may come from this uh, with people who ve feel very strongly about salt. And my my response to this is, well, prove it then. Because when you look at the evidence on does lowering salt to the recommendations by the World Health Organization, by the American Heart Association, you don't see improvements in n people who don't have existing disease states. So we're talking about people who don't have- Kidneys, yeah, liver, heart, stuff like exactly. that. Exactly, you don't have end-stage renal disease, your kidneys aren't pickled, you don't have uh, congestive heart failure, uh, these sort of things. However, um, for instance, the recommendation right now, like I said, was between, to take in between 2,000 to 2,400 or 2,300 milligrams of sodium per day. Okay, the average American takes in about 3,400 milligrams of sodium per day. Uh, the Institute of Medicine, this another huge group, uh, basically reviewed all of these studies in 2013. Anything that met criteria uh, for putting uh, a salt intake or sodium intake and outcomes. And it said that there was no evidence to suggest that lowering 
people's sodium intake to that level improved outcomes unless they had a pre-existing disease like mm -hmm. we just mentioned. Uh, in fact, they said that if you try to lower it to that or lower, that you're, you had an increased risk of morbidity, which is disease, and mortality, which is death. Okay, which seems interesting, all right? And then they further said that it does appear that between 3,000 milligrams to 6,000 milligrams, so three to six grams of sodium per day is normal. You're fine. That's like yep. the, that's the normal range. And if you're in there, you're fine. And the average American takes in 3,400 milligrams of sodium per day. So it looks like they're right in line with that. It's almost like salt is a nutrient like almost all the others that have a U-shaped curve in terms of you get too little, bad things happen. You get too much, bad things happen. And it's not the one nutrient that needs to be vilified and you eat zero of it for optimal health. No, no, don't eat any. <laughs> Never eat any salt. Um, yes. And then now the final layer of complexity before we move on here. Uh, athletes. And I'm talking about no shit athletes. And I apologize for cursing, but I just feel like there's no other way to express my point. I'm not talking about the person who does starting strength three days per week. Uh, I think you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. <clears throat> Keep PRing. I'm super jealous. I haven't PR'd in like three years. <laughs> I think, uh, but I'm talking about the person who's getting ready to go to the CrossFit Games or the person who's getting ready to play football this season I'm getting re uh, or getting ready to play some other uh, actual athletic uh, yeah. uh, sport. Training, training two-a-days, stuff like that. Yep. There has been recommendations. So the American College of Sports Medicine says that people should be taking in between 700 and 800 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid. All right. And there, the amount of fluid you should be taking in depends on how much you're actually exercising, how much you're losing. So for every one kilogram that you're losing uh, in a training session, you're supposed to replace 150 percent of that. So you should have one and a half liters per kilo you lose um, during during uh, exercise, which means you'd be adding a bunch of salt to that. Uh, Gatorade doesn't have enough salt in it. Powerade doesn't have enough salt in it. There's no actually commercially available supplement like that that actually has enough salt, even Pedialyte. Um, so what's what's a girl to do? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the answer isn't salt tablets because uh, all that's going to do is stimulate you to drink more water, which is going to dilute Skew them. It's going to dilute yeah. that further, which is actually how two football players, American football players, died last year. High school varsity American football players. Effectively, they did a two a day, and this one guy drank something that was like 20 gallons or 25 gallons. Of <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, and so he goes into hyponatremia, ends up in the ICU, and dies from cerebral edema. Same thing with the second guy; he didn't make it to the ICU though. Yeah. Um, so the deal is if you take in too much fluid without the correct amount of salt, that's a dangerous situation. Um, there's also some evidence that hyponatremia occurs during extraneous exercise. To clarify what hyponatremia uh, is, got, got you this you time. You got me. Uh, it's a low, hyponatremia is a low serum concentration of sodium in your uh, swimming around in your bloodstream. And it's really a number that reflects the relative con contribution between how much sodium is there and how much water is there. If you yeah. don't have enough water... It goes up. If you have too much water, it dilutes it down. Correct. So, yeah, it does appear that most athletes, when they have strenuous exercise, will have uh, this asymptomatic hyponatremia. Um, and to what effect performance is augmented by replace, replenishing salt uh, varies depending on which study you look at. All right. So there's some evidence that uh, repl replenishing salt uh, the correct amount with the, without over-diluting yourself with fluid intake actually does improve 
uh, subsequent performance. What they mean by that is if you have two or three events on the same day, that taking in the correct amount of salt will actually uh, you'll perform better than if you didn't, which makes sense. Again, if yeah. <laughs> if All these electrolytes contribute to, and, and the hydration status contributes to muscular function, cellular function, neurological function, all kinds of things are improved when that stuff is optimized. Yeah, and how I simplify this down is, so the current model of fatigue, which is also the current model of performance, uh, is basically the central governor model of fatigue. So central governor effectively means that your brain is taking into consideration all the sort of buildup of toxic products. So lactate, hydrogen ions, all these sort of byproducts. Those are real toxins. Those are real toxins, yeah. That you can sub deal with just, just fine. <laughs> uh, also the depletion of certain things in your muscles and other places like glycogen depletion and also the environment that you're in. So is it super hot outside? Is it, you know, all these sort of things. The brain takes into consideration all these hundreds of thousands of things and ultimately regulates your performance. Uh, easy example or easy sort of uh, uh, example of this is Let's say your best mile time is seven minutes and you ran that and it was 65 degrees outside. It was still, there was no wind or whatever. Uh, and then you trained for, you know, 12 weeks and the time you decide to retest it, um, it's 80 degrees outside with 80% humidity. Well, you're going to run slower most likely or slower than you otherwise would. Uh, right. And it's not just your last 200 is slower or your last 400 is slower. You're slower from the jump because your brain's like, uh, I don't want to go to this dangerous place. Um, yep. So, and in any event, so it makes sense that if your salt is low and continues to be low in subsequent events, that that's one thing that your brain is taking into consideration and saying, you know what, I'm not going to go to that red zone because if I lose any more salt, then I'm really pickled. Um, mm -hmm. So something that uh, some top coaches and trainers have been using are bouillon cubes, uh, which is not my favorite because again, this just stimulates you to drink a bunch more fluid. thirst. Yeah. yeah. So not the thirst that you see on Instagram, but the thirst <laughs> your area postrema generates this eight. Okay. No, we don't need to talk about that. But uh, yeah, it does stimulate people to drink too much water. So I would just add salt, table salt, and it's important to use table salt and not uh, sea salt because sea salt comes in a varying array of different uh, actual sodium content. Um, you can have as little as ten percent sodium by weight to up to sixty percent. So we have a question about this on my post. Is there anything better about sea salt compared to iodized salt, doctor? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. No, there's something better. So I actually hold stock in. Uh... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Somebody's getting rich from all these people buying sea salt. Um, yeah. there, there are some sea salts that some people report that taste better. And uh, in addition to that, do you have the same concentration of actual sodium that table salt does? And in our country, the westernized country, we're not really worried about iodine <laughs> deficiency. So that's not really a consideration that I would necessarily make unless all you had was sea salt and none of the foods that you consumed had sodium in them. That right. Was, yeah. Which would be rare, but, you know, people are just strange enough to do these weird things. Yeah. So, Sometime it'll show up. Yeah. Like, we, what do we hear? If you have too many egg whites, it binds uh, biotin. Avidin, yeah. biotin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the avidin protein binds biotin. And so you can get, like, this B2 riboflavin deficiency. And you're like, ah, that'll never happen. And then all of a sudden, some guy or gal is eating, like, 60 egg whites a day because <laughs> they're trying to get lean. You're like, you did it. Uh, yeah. Congratulations. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. It happens, man. It does happen. Yeah, you just give people enough time, they'll do it. Okay, so we talked about um, you know uh, non-pharmacologic training stuff uh, briefly, brief and some complementary alternative medicine uh, effects on 
blood pressure and what people should do if they're on the novice linear progression. Let's talk uh, briefly about some uh, medication considerations. And, and yep. I think the simplest way to do this, so this isn't a medicine podcast so far. Like practitioners, don't listen to this to get the latest like, oh, this new beta blocker was developed and it's got this effect size compared to right. pro- propranolol. Listen to something else or not this. This What this is for is for- You should already know this stuff. <laughs> right. Uh, this is for people who are coaching others and are worried about them having high blood pressure. Like they're because blood pressure, high blood pressure is common. So you're wondering, can I train this person? Or Mm -hmm. if you're a practitioner and you're like, oh, I wonder what kind of exercise I should be recommending to Mm -hmm. my patient. So those are the two, this is what we're doing here. All right. So, all right, Austin or Dr. Baraki, you referred a 65 year old female to me who's previously untrained. Her blood pressure is 155 over 90. You're worried that she's got high blood pressure. And you know what? It was on. Her ambulatory blood pressure monitoring basically came back. That was her average. So you started her on propranolol. I don't know why you did that. I know you did, <laughs> but let's just say that you did. All right, and, and because right. we don't need to go through this whole clinical decision making algorithm right. for this podcast. But let's say you started on propranolol, which is a beta blocker. Okay, a beta blocker has these unique effects on the heart. Uh, which how does that going to affect her exercise tolerance and capacity? Yeah, so so beta blockers, um, it the, the, they're named that because they block beta adrenergic receptors, and those are receptors in the autonomic nervous system. Autonomic nervous system being the uh, sympathetic, the fight or flight deal, and the parasympathetic nervous systems. And you know that when you go get up to train, you would like to be in a relatively more sympathetic state to get what you need to do done and PR your deadlift and stuff like that. So, if uh, there are beta receptors all over the body, in your blood vessels, in your heart. There's even some in your bladder, like all over the place. Um, so how this medication works, particularly propranolol, but there are others that you that if you're a coach, you'll probably see some patients on. Metoprolol is another one that's super common. Um, Cor- basically, carvedilol. If, it ends carvedilol in, if it ends in OL, well, first Google it. If it, if it ends in LOL, really. That's, <laughs> that's what if, I'm it, if it ends in LOL, you can. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And so, and so these to varying degrees block the receptors either out in the bl- body in your uh, blood vessels or in your heart itself. And the ones that if, if it blocks the, bl- the receptors in your heart itself, it actually affects your, abil- your heart's ability to ramp up its heart rate. And increasing your heart rate is rather important to be able to provide adequate cardiac output to your body to pump out enough blood containing oxygen that your muscles need to get the exercise done that you're trying to do. So these medications are actually well known to actually limit exercise tolerance. And in fact, a lot of patients with bad coronary artery disease or heart disease get put on these basically to tamp down the heart rate that they can achieve so that they don't start feeling chest pain when they exert themselves. It actually hamstrings them purposefully so they don't get into a situation where they have bad chest pain and end up with a heart attack, among a few other reasons why they get put on it um, for purposes of heart failure and things like that. Good use of the word hamstring. Yeah. Good, good, good word. Unorthodox. Yes. So, so that would be a concern for me um, if, I have, uh, if I'm a coach and I have a client who comes in and they're on a beta blocker, particularly on one that's actually a fairly high dose. And they're, you know, we actually titrate the dose of these medications. We, we change the dose that the patient takes usually to try to achieve a heart rate of a, a resting heart rate of around 60 beats per minute, particularly in patients with heart disease. And so if I have a patient who's on this and I want to program them to do a bunch of the conditioning work that we talked about earlier, for example, or partic- if I felt bold enough to give them some high intensity conditioning work and then I keep yelling at them when they can't actually achieve super high intensities, that's me failing to recognize the effects of this medication on their ability to ramp up their heart rate in response to exercise. Can you think of a scenario, scenario, where a beta blocker may be a PED? Um, 
it can be used as a PED in certain, like it's, it's notoriously used in situations where someone has to perform, um, like in archery and shooting and stuff like that, where sure. you can't let your nerves get to you and you need to stay calm and stay still and things like that. They're taken before speeches for people who have like situational anxiety issues and things like that when they need to get up and do something in front of a bunch of people. That's another one. Golf, uh, other, yeah. the biathlon perhaps, although you would say yeah. that they would just go slower. Uh, yeah, High, highly skill and precision dependent sports, I'd say, and accuracy, I guess, if we're going down the, the physical adaptations. Very crossfit of you. All right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's beta blocker. Hey, the open is coming. Um, okay. <laughs> the open is coming. <laughs> okay, so more common medications, particularly now that we've entered this new era of pharmacology where we don't just prescribe a beta blocker or, you know, bloodlet people who have hypertension. Yeah. Uh, what, do, what are we going to see? So, uh, most p- common first first line medication um, for your average patient. A lot of times you'll see patients on diuretics, like hydrochlorothiazide is one, but that one has relatively, I, I would say, a little bit less relevance to our discussion here. They're not particular, like that one in particular is not super potent. It's not going to dehydrate the hell out of your patients when they come to train, sure. for the most part. Um, another common one would be the class of uh, what are called ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. Those are medicines like uh, lisinopril is a very common one, mm-hmm. and anything that ends in PRIL um, is an ACE inhibitor. And then uh, the angiotensin receptor blockers are uh, losartan, and anything that ends in sartan or artan. Valsartan is another one, for example. Artan. So yeah, yeah, I like that. Interestingly, that you know, there's some evidence. So older people tend to respond less. Um, how do I say this? They're less robustly to either a bolus of pro- a dose of protein intake or resistance training. And when I say respond less. Uh, robustly, I mean less muscle protein synthesis compared to the younger folks, okay? And uh, some of this is due to blood flow, so actual blood flow to the microvasculature, um, so the small blood vessels that actually uh, course through the skeletal muscle. Um, And there's some evidence that actually taking uh, something like a lisinopril or losartan can actually increase muscle protein synthesis rates in the elderly folks. So what I've taken it upon myself to do is to microdose this Losartan uh, in my patients along with protein. So what we're doing is whey protein and Losartan, <laughs> TID. This, disclaimer, he's not doing that. I'm not doing that. Nobody would, nobody would want me to do that, But which is good uh, for safety. But maybe, in the, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. It's certainly worth, well, I wouldn't look at it. It's a super into, common medicine, yeah. Yeah, so basically, look. If you got blood pressure that's resistant to you losing weight, to you exercising, to you doing any of the lifestyle med- medications, just think about it. You get more gains. I think, look, man, put me on it. Put me on it. All right? Put me on it. I want it. I want it. Give it to me. All right. You're, you're going to stop using your CPAP machine so your blood pressure goes up so you need just Losartan. Just so I get Losartan. Look, I'm trying to get that five pounds. All right. All right. Here we go. We are going to do... Uh, the Q&A, and it's going to be rapid fire. And what I'm doing, you see my hand move across. All right. We're going to show people ooh, what's going on here. What are you getting on, something live or something? We are on Instagram Live. And the reason oh. I like Instagram Live so much is because it disappears. So you can't yeah. hold on to this. All right, so here's how this is going to work. I'm going to ask you a question, and then you're going to answer, and then I'm going to answer. This is rapid fire. Are you ready, Dr. Baraki? Do it. Here we go. Dustin Chris, Dustin Christ, thirty asks: Is aerobic exercise such as steady state cardio 
important for strength sports, i.e. weightlifting or powerlifting, or would time be better spent doing other things? I think it can be useful for lots of strength sports. Uh, the degree to which you do it needs to be balanced appropriately for your degree of adaptation. And when you say, would time be better spent doing other things, that depends on how much are you already training, where are you in terms of your progression, novice, intermediate, advanced, where are you? Uh, but I think working conditioning in alongside your strength work is a great idea. Yeah, so that, yeah, I agree with that response. My further sort of... I didn't know how rapid I'm supposed to be here. So, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> so the thing is, look, if you think, um, if you think about it, do you need to do conditioning in order to maximize your strength performance? The answer to that, in general, for most people, is going to be no. Now, is it possible that you have such a low level of um, uh, 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 aerobic conditioning that you actually cannot support the volume required yeah. to get stronger? That's possible, unlikely, but it's possible. In which case, doing some conditioning is, is gonna help you out there. Uh, it's also possible that um, <laughs> doing any conditioning instead of just training more is likely to <laughs> result in decreased performance compared to just training more with weights. So yeah. that would be that would be my 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 counter argument. So would time be spent better doing other things? Most likely, yes, unless you're super super out of shape. In which case. I would say then that resistance training in and of itself is highly likely to improve things like a VO2 max or your aerobic conditioning to a to a enough degree to allow you to tolerate. Yeah, to a noticeable degree, I would say. To a noticeable degree, yeah. The thing is, the thing is, I mean, if you if you'll think about it, that doing the resistance training uh, basically increases your conditioning up to a level for you to tolerate that level of conditioning. Right. The problem becomes is when you, the amount of training you need is significantly higher than what you've been doing and your current existing conditioning level won't support that. Yeah. That's the deal. All right. Untamed Strength asks, should I drink a gallon of water every day to ensure I'm adequately hydrated? What's up, Alan? I would say that you don't need to specifically carry around a gallon of water and drink it every day. Uh, we have very, very sophisticated physiologic mechanisms that guide our ability to maintain hydration, uh, manage our electrolytes. We have um, our hypothalamus, pituitary, all kinds of fancy structures in there that measure constantly the concentration of things in your blood and drive your thirst. Um, I would call it thirst drive uh, in order to make sure that you drink enough on a daily basis. Um, additionally, I would say that you are probably, I mean, I think the typical American diet, which is of course not great, but they still get about 20% of their water intake out of food. Places that eat a whole bunch more fruits and vegetables and stuff like that, they get a higher proportion from food. I'm sure you drink coffee in the morning. That is not a dehydrating substance. It contributes to your water intake. Totally fine. So you don't, what I'm saying is that you're getting a lot of fluids in that you're probably not measuring if you feel like you must drink a gallon of water every day. That's my short answer, I would say. I certainly don't carry around a gallon of water every day. I let thirst guide things. I make sure that I drink probably a little more before I go to train so I can address that like central governor fatigue type deal to make sure that I'm not inadequately hydrated for my, works, for my workout, but I'm not the kind of guy that carries around a gallon in the gym or anywhere else, really. I yeah, I lost, I lost you. I lost you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I'm back. Now, um, now so I'm echoing. So. I actually do carry around a gallon of water every day, mainly to let people know that I lift. <laughs> I don't want there to be any doubt that I'm actually strong. That's true. Yeah. And that also there may or may not be a barbed wire tattoo around my bicep. <laughs> I just want people we'll to leave, know. We'll, and we'll so the only that. way for me to do that is to w carry around a gallon of water. Um, no. Well, is 
Should you drink a gallon of water a day? The answer to that is maybe, and it's probably actually under hydration. So one gallon of water is 3.78 liters per day, depending on how much you're sweating, what your body weight is. It may be inadequate or it may be sufficient. Yeah. I can't tell you that. I just, honestly, if you think that you need to slam just gallons and gallons of water a day, the answer to that is probably not, unless you're joining a fraternity, in which case drink all of that water and hopefully it doesn't kill you. Yeah. Okay, next question. J. Rawls, 25. Are there any modifications that should be made to starting strength programming for a woman who just had a C-section 12 weeks ago? Dr. Barack. 12 weeks, 12 weeks ago, no modifications needed. I agree. And, and, and basically, it's just too long. Effectively, yeah. you're, you're normal now. I mean, you're not yeah. no, I mean. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Next question. All right. Dwayne went. Dwayne Kong asks, the last couple times I've gone to a doctor have been for tonsillitis or an, tonsillitis or an ear infection. Uh, previously, ear infection. He's currently on antibiotics. Anyway, he gets asked, has your doctor or anyone talked to you about high blood pressure? And he always says no because uh, that question, uh, no one has actually talked to him about it. Uh, they usually ask uh, because the, th- the number comes out to 130 over 80 when he comes in sick. On his yearly well visits, it's usually 110 to 120 over 80, and he doesn't get those questions. So what is a, bla- a bad blood pressure reading? Mm-hmm. Uh, as a recreational strength athlete, is there anything that I should be concerned about as I try to add muscle mass while getting used to higher and higher levels of pressure while getting stronger? I'm not really sure what he means by pressure. Uh, and then he asks, uh, my doctor will not be of help because she doesn't care about my strength levels and would rather I was 100 pounds lighter. 100 pounds? There's no way she would want that. You would be cachectic. Does she know that you bench 475, man? Come That's on. What I'm saying. What's more important? Look. <laughs> Priorities, woman. I'm going to accept 130 or 140 on a systolic for a 475 bench. Yeah. All right. I'll be fine. <laughs> so here's my answer to this, basically. And part of it comes from the discussion that we had earlier about how hypertension or high blood pressure is diagnosed. What you are having done is not sufficient to make the diagnosis. You're having intermittent readings of 130 over 80 when you come in sick, when something is going on. Uh, and your yearly visits, it's 110 over 80, which is totally fine. Now, here's the deal. If you're not getting diagnosed through ambulatory blood pressure monitoring or with home blood pressure monitoring, in-office measurements, the guidelines for that say that you need to have serial measurements at least two or three occasions separated by at least a week in clinic and get those numbers averaged if you're going to be diagnosed by in-office cuff measurements, which is also assuming that the cuff measurements were done properly through all the ways that we said before, which is highly unlikely because you have huge rippling biceps and the cuff is probably too small as it was. Anyway, so especially given the fact that your numbers are fine at your yearly well visits, it's totally fine. You don't have high blood pressure. The person who's talking to you about high blood pressure with a 130 over 80 when you're sick once out of the year doesn't know how to diagnose high blood pressure. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say in addition in addition to the fact that if you think about somebody who's got tonsillitis-type symptoms or an ear infection, you think about the constellation of symptoms that they likely have. They've got sinus pressure. They've got a runny nose, perhaps. Their ear, they, everything feels congested. Yes, yeah, so they're probably on Sudafed or, or, or taking well, – I'm some, saying he might have a sore throat, some pain there. Oh, yeah. Or, or if he has, yeah, if you're in any pain, your blood pressure is going to be elevated. If you're on a stimulant like Sudafed or Sudafrin or any, any, you know, any, anything like that, then your blood pressure is going to be elevated too. Yep. In which case, we have a reason. Yep. We have a reason. Yep. More concerning – I mean not really concerning, but why are you having yearly tonsillitis? 
All right, for another for another podcast. Okay, Hannibal Lechner. No, it's <laughs> is it Lechter or Lechner? Lech, is, Lech, Lechner H. This is Lechner H. All right. How, I, I feel like this was Hannibal. Right. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> How to get into using resistance bands within training to increase the big three, the big three being the squat, the bench press, and the deadlift. So when should he use band, She, he or she use bands, and what bands should he or she start with, and how should he or she program <laughs> training? Yeah. So, so, first, let me answer the meaning of life, and then Austin can answer. When he <laughs> okay. So we get these kind of questions a lot when it comes to equipment. I get this question almost weekly, I would say, about either knee sleeves or a belt or wrist wraps or straps or elbow sleeves or bands or anything. They're like, at what wait, should I start using this stuff? And there's no magic answer to it. And I can't give you an answer as to when you should using re- start using resistance bands. In fact, I would say that you don't ever have to use resistance bands. Correct. Um, that's just, it's not an essential component of making long-term progress with the big three. You can use them in your training, but there, like I said, there's no magic time. So I don't know anything about you. I don't know how strong you are. I don't know where you are in terms of your novice intermediate advanced progression. I don't know what your current programming is. All kinds of variables that make this an insufficiently specific question, I think, for us. So the meaning of life is <laughs> to reproduce, consume resources, and then and make gains, and then re-enter the carbon cycle. Um, but <laughs> the use of bands is not indicated ever. Uh, actually, so I've done quite a few A/B trials. So all my clients out there in the listener world, you've been experimented on. For the greater good. And there's no improvement with using the bands. The The thing that I see most commonly is that people get mo- motivated to use the bands. Because they're not sure, quite sure how much of the bands add. It feels They harder. push harder. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's just ultimately it, they get more motivated about their training. And I think it's fine. But so Tishera and I had like a pretty good discussion about this, and it's fine. So when should you use them? Never or soon, if we if we knew. <laughs> you don't ever need to use them. They're that's, never like the, the, the rate limiting step between you getting stronger. Yep. Uh, but you know, they may make you get more excited about your training. Moving on, sagittal, AFLS. Is there a significant? Oh no, AFL. No, it's sagittal AF. <laughs> I wonder if this is like sumo. a fun- if this is a movement guy like no, a no, functional. No, no, this guy plus Sag- sumos. This guy uh, sumos. Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> Sagittal AF. Um, <laughs> is there a significant carryover from heavy barbell hip thrusts to squats and deadlifts, Austin? Today's daily double. No. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so the qualifier there being significant, right? So. And, and all this is another thing that, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like what we would consider clinical significance in medicine when it comes to like being under the bar. How significant is significant? And how that, that the answer to that would depend on, I suppose, how advanced you are, how, you know, what your rate of progress is at this point. If you're putting five pounds on your bench a year, then maybe putting five pounds on your bench is pretty significant. My point being that all exercises fall along a spectrum of specificity. Uh, Jordan wrote about this double funnel business. I'm probably taking his point away from him right now. Heavy barbell hip thrusts involve hip extension. Hip extension is involved in the squat and the deadlift. So if you train the hell out of your heavy barbell hip thrust, if you're a glute guy, for example, and you're into that kind of thing, uh, 
to say that there's going to be no carryover, I can't say that because there is some degree of hip extension in both movements. You might you'll probably you might get some benefit out of it. Sure. Significant carryover, I've never seen such a thing to occur. Uh, and so the, the the question you want to ask is: <laughs> Is there enough carryover from heavy barbell hip thrust to squat deadlifts? to make using them worthwhile compared to squatting and deadlifting more, to which I would say no. Yeah, I would agree with that. However, a slightly more nuanced answer. <laughs> um, so I think a more interesting answer is, and I'll answer first, and then you can answer. When would it be appropriate to program in barbell hip thrusts? So if I have somebody who otherwise does not tolerate increased volume or frequency of deadlifting, so that's more exposures to that type of lift. And I mean, any variations, for instance, they rack can't pull. deadlift one day and then <laughs> rack pull or a deadlift in RDL or deadlift maybe penalty row, maybe it's too much. Maybe they can do a hip thrust. Um, so, you know, when, when would you program that? or squatting e- either way? So I could see in both of those situations, an argument to be made for using hip thrusts, uh, but it wouldn't be a permanent solution. It'd be more of a solution for a bridge, a bridge to finding out what, why the hell is, what the hell's going on. Okay. Second thing, let's say that you're a talentless 25-year-old person who wants to be an Insta-famous coach. How do you suppose that one goes about <laughs> claiming hundreds of thousands of followers? And I think the key to that is probably the glute bridge. Do you think about it? Because you can wear booty shorts. You can film for very you know sensual angles. And mm-hmm. you don't actually have to be an athlete to complete a lot of weight. You, yeah. I think Brett Contreras did like a thousand pounds or something. That, but he pulls like six, right? No, I don't I know. He, he squatted four oh five and deadlifted like five and a half. Maybe he pulls. No, six. I'm, I'm. That's what I'm saying is like even if he pulled six, I'm kind of like unimpressed with I'm a thousand pound glute bridge because I sure as shit can't do a thousand pound glute bridge. No, do you ever watch? Uh, <laughs> do you ever watch? Oh, what is that? Uh, it's like is it called? It's on ESPN. It's like the they're filming in Miami. It's like a Hispanic guy's dad mm-hmm. it's like see or no or something like that <laughs> and he goes and they always are you impressed and he goes oh see 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 <laughs> not impressed not impressed not, yeah i did see uh Tushera was telling me about a guy who like hip thrusted a semi truck yeah. all right i'm impressed yeah i don't know like how more impre- more impressive is you got people to set up an apparatus for you to lay under <laughs> also again think how many girlfriends you can get from that <laughs> This dude hit thrust at a set. All right. All right. Now we're going to our by the, territory. By the way, I'm echoing again over there. Oh, well. Put your headphones back on. Come on, man. I got the got the live going. Yeah, oh, right. I see. All right. All right. Fine. Just don't stop talking. All right. So people don't <laughs> complain when the echo comes in at the end. This is my fault. All right. But I did. I gave him an hour. All, All right. It's right, fine. Denzel is dead. Uh, that's probably not a scream. Denzel dead. Denzel dead. <laughs> Ask, is high blood sugar common with power lifters? So I've not tested the blood sugar of enough power lifters to give you the answer to that. But people who are obese, if they're like super heavies, then they probably have high blood sugar, blood sugars. And I know that they tend to eat a lot of crap that would give, that would predispose you to having high blood sugar, but they also train a whole lot. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, I think that it's unlikely that power lifters in general are going to have high blood pressure unless they're diabetics. Sugars. Sugars. <laughs> what did I say? You said pressures. Oh. They, defi- they definitely have high blood pressures. Well, <laughs> well yeah. Uh, th- it's unlikely for them to have high blood sugars. Well, pathologically elevated high blood sugars unless that they're 
uh, unless they're diabetic. Uh, well, and those are kind of <laughs> those are those are kind of the same thing. <laughs> well, yeah, but so we also talked about we also talked about you know if they were, somebody was supplemented with a lot of growth hormone or growth hormone secretogues, uh, which basically just means a medication or drug that makes you secrete more growth hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that growth hormone does is you know increase blood sugar. So it makes you and it makes you relatively insulin resistant too. So that would contribute to high blood sugars. Yeah, very interesting. Like quick aside uh, here at the hour fifteen mark, <laughs> is that um, yeah. So people will say you know you want to maximize your growth hormone levels to uh, optimize growth and recovery, which is a hundred percent. Uh, untrue. And, and if you think about the reasons why growth hormone goes up, growth hormone goes up because you're either fasted or you've exercised to an extent where you've depleted a significant amount of glycogen in the muscles where you want to get free fatty acids released so yep. you can use for a fuel. All right. Basically, you're either hungry <laughs> or you're fasting. And that's why. Either way, either way, you're insulin resistant, which is not an optimal state to be in for, for gains. Growth. For muscle growth. Yeah. 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 So, and, and they're like, oh, so should you fast after a workout? <laughs> God damn it, you're missing the point. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Me- meanwhile, you know, Gandhi is jacked. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, he's fasting on stuff. All right. Moving on. Uh, my Mosh Mueller, what is the actual data about the relationship between body weight and high blood pressure? Baraki. So the rest of his question says mainly is it weight or body fat that has an effect? And is it problematic for people with moderately high blood pressure to add body weight as a result of training? That's where things can get a little bit interesting. So the the actual data would suggest that it's more the body fat component. As we mentioned before, there's a lot of um, what I would call like maladaptive changes in your physiology. You get the bad adipokines that end up coming out and contributing to this. Obese people end up having higher, relatively higher uh, cortisol levels and aldosterone levels and all sorts of things that can contribute towards elevated blood pressures. As you train, you're going to gain muscle mass. That doesn't mean that if you are obese and starting out your novice progression that you need to do a gallon of milk a day or really gain any weight at all during your novice progression. You should get through it, eat what you consider to be a normal diet. You'll probably lose a little bit of weight, which will do favorable things for you all around, make you lose fat. You'll look better. Your, serum, your testosterone levels will probably go up. You'll sleep better. You'll feel better. Your blood pressure might improve a little bit. So yeah, I wouldn't aggressively gain tons of weight if you're obese and hypertensive at the start of a novice progression. I would agree. I have nothing to add to that. Great. <laughs> hey, you won. Uh, Renee Mathis asks from an anonymous from an, an, an from an anonymous <laughs> person. It's hard if, to say. If you lift something heavy and feel lightheaded or see stars. Is that a problem, or does it just mean you need to slow down and rest for a little bit? I'll take the lead on this one. So, interestingly, people would say, oh, if you're lightheaded, maybe your sugar, blood sugar is low. They may say that. Um, but interestingly, the data, when you look at people who have signs of hypoglycemia, so uh, they're lightheaded, they may feel jittery, or any of the other symptoms, the their blood sugar is actually usually normal most of the time. And then people who actually do have hypoglycemia, that are not diabetic. These, mind you, this is neither. Of these are diabetic populations. Um, people who do have legit hypoglycemia don't have symptoms, so it's less unlikely to be sh- sugar related. Is it blood pressure related? Uh, again, unlikely because if you think about if you have low blood pressure, it, you're not just going to have one incidence randomly where you're like, oh, I feel lightheaded. You're just you're going to feel that a bunch of times. If you stood up all of a sudden and you have it, sure, you can have a vasovagal. That can be an issue. Um, or some other reason why your blood sugar or blood pressure acutely dropped. But if you just have low blood pressure for whatever reason, uh, it's not just going to present itself 
during a lift. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so do you need to slow down and rest for a little bit? Again, it really depends why and what exactly you're having. So I will also add to that that, um, I mean, some a lot of times this happens with people who do prolonged Valsalvas. I mean, I know it's happened to me before, and that brings me to the point that we actually didn't discuss the Valsalva a whole lot during the talk. Um, I'm not going to go down the full Valsalva rabbit hole. If you want details on it, Dr. Sullivan wrote a fantastic article on the Starting Strength website called something related to the Valsalva. I forget the exact title. It's time for everyone to take a deep breath, which was pretty, yeah, pretty witty, pretty witty subtitle there. Suffice to say that doing the Valsalva is safe. It's essential. You're going to do it whether you want to or not when you lift. It's helps with force transmission, will help you lift more weights. It's not going to cause you to have a stroke, blow an aneurysm, have a heart attack, or any of those things. So do the Valsalva maneuver. You're going to blow an aneurysm. You're going to blow an O-ring, man. Just briefly, if this is the only thing, if you don't actually go read that article, here's the deal. Right? You have a 6% chance of just having an aneurysm just sitting in your brain right now. Okay, And the three <laughs> most common things that will cause that to blow are either taking a number two in the bathroom, masturbating <laughs> or watching television okay uh, in no specific order so you know either don't do any of those three things or understand that training is really not going to increase your rate of uh, yep. rupturing an aneurysm in fact doing it while training well when you're in relatively speaking i suppose a controlled titratable environment in terms of how much weight you're using on the bar is something that will stress your blood your vascular system your circulatory system in a way that will allow it to uh, recover and adapt just like all your skeletal muscles do to the point where your arterial system will better be able to handle the blood pressure of 400 over 200 when you pull a 600 deadlift as a result of having adapted all the way up from a 50 pound deadlift all the way up to that 600 pound deadlift I don't, I don't want to know if my blood pressure is 400, though. I don't either. I just know that I'm all right so yeah, far, at least. I, I'm purple. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Adam DPTL. What do you think the L stands for? Uh, oh, no, it's an I. It's Adam DPT. We needed more spaces between these names. And That's there true. We go. <laughs> That's true. Better screen name. Adam DPT asks, I have a couple topics. For, oh, great. I have a couple topics for you that I think about as a PT student. One. Can you talk about the use of Valsalva in a clinical population versus a general population? Uh, I would refer you to Dr. Sullivan's article. And then additionally, it depends which clinical population you're talking about. There are only a few people that Valsalvas are contraindicated against. And those are folks with what we call triple A. So that's uh, abdominal aortic aneurysms or very large aneurysms in their brain that we know about. Uh, and they're waiting surgery uh, or are poor surgical candidates and they cannot go into surgery. And they put those people on stool softeners universally because guess when you do a Valsalva? Whether you want to or not. Yeah, you're pooping. Yeah. Honey, it's like my grandmother beating on the door. Honey, you're pooping in there. It's like, you poop today? Yeah. <laughs> Get yourself a sandwich. All right. Yeah. Uh, so in a general population, we just talked about that. All right. In what ways will strength training alone improve the cardiopulmonary system? That's what I just about? tailed off there at the end there on the last last comment. Did I catch a niner in there or is that a walkie-talkie? No? Okay. Can you talk about strength training's role, misspelled, uh, in, I'm just I'm trolling now. Can you talk <laughs> about strength training's role in the obesity epidemic? We already talked about that at the beginning. Do you, I think we answered. Hey. We, we covered a, it. We did a good job. The, All right. It's a, As a reminder, it's a compliance tool. That's what we said. Yeah, we're moving on. Forever in my gym clothes. I assume that's Lululemon. 
What do you make of this? Chronically mild elevate mildly elevated ALT. So so that is a liver enzyme. Okay, it was sixty seven on the last draw. And just to give you guys a kind of pick a glimpse into both Austin and I's brain right now, when we see sixty seven. We go. It's moderately elevated. Or I would say very mildly mild. elevated. Yeah, it depends on what everything else looks like, but we're both like. Yeah. 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 All right, so he had a mildly elevated ALT since starting a rigid diet and exercise plan four years ago. He's been counting macros, one gram, per protein, one gram of protein per pound of body weight. His GFR, which is his glomerular filtration rate, which tells us his kidney function approximately, uh, was 56, and it's been chronically low, question mark. Yes. CKD3? Uh, yeah. Uh, right. Uh, is this diet related or something else? I drink one to one and a half gallons of water per day. I CrossFit or bodybuild six days a week, and I maintain a leaner frame. He's 37 years old, otherwise totally healthy. Baraki. Yeah, so this is not a surprising finding on these labs for a few reasons. And so it's very important for the physician or the whoever is in trying to interpret these labs to understand what you do. And the reason I say that is because, um, you know, it's very, very often that we'll see um, people with high levels of muscle mass, uh, of which a breakdown byproduct is creatinine, which is the value that we measure on uh, chemistry panels in order to then estimate someone's glomerular filtration rate. So basically, it is a biomarker that when you're in a homeostatic state, when you're in steady state, the concentration of it can give us an idea of how quickly or slowly your kidneys are filtering. Slow filtering means kidney disease. So a GFR of 56, as he said, would place him into what we would call category of chronic kidney disease, stage three, I believe. Um, and so that is not good if that was true. However, people with high levels of muscle mass will always have higher levels of creatinine floating around in their bloodstream. And the reason for that is that um, the serum level of it is a balance between production and elimination. And people with really high levels of muscle mass have higher levels of production of this stuff. So more of it floats around more of the time. And so it can result in a falsely low estimation of your glomerular filtration rate. So that would be my suspicion as to what's going on in you. If you're 37, totally healthy, you've not had progressive decline in your GFR over time. That would be definitely concerning. Uh, you don't have any other diseases that would predispose you to kidney disease like bad high blood pressure, diabetes, things like that. So that's what I would say on that standpoint. You also might be badly timing your creatine ingestion right before your lab draws which is jordan's territory off and i can let him talk about the data on this yeah creatine will creatine will kill you it's it'll it's nephrotoxic Nephrotoxic. immediately you need kidney transplant so when dr Baraki says nephrotoxic he means toxic to the kidneys um creatine dietary supplement um does cyclize into creatinine um, what I mean by cyclize, I mean it take it starts out as creatine and in vivo in your body it actually will cyclize to creatinine. It does this more so if it's crealkaline, which is a terrible supplement to use, uh, and less made by Titan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, um, so it's less likely uh, to occur if it's creatine monohydrate, which actually gets absorbed as creatine. Um, in any event, if your creatinine levels are elevated because you're taking creatine supplements or because you have elevated muscle mass, both of those things can raise your creatinine and then alter your GFR, which ultimately is gonna concern your uh, a practitioner. What yep. they should do in that situation is measure a urinary creatinine to calculate your actual creatinine excretion rate, which ultimately would say, oh, it's normal. 
And so actually we did this experimentally and we, so, so a normal creatinine, Austin and I, well, so you, you and I are kind of jacked. Uh, we, uh, we a little big. And uh, so your and I's creatinine is probably 1.2, 1.3, maybe maybe even higher. You know, we get we finally get over that 200 pound mark, both of us. Yeah. That's the goal. That's the goal. We either want to be 200 pounds or have a one and a half creatinine. <laughs> um, but the average person walking around is one or less. If it's an older, skinny person without a lot of muscle, it's going to be lower, you know, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.6. Um, in any event, uh, we found that people who took create, create, uh, crealkaline, that creatine product, had creatinine levels of 7 within 24 hours of taking the actual supplement. And can you imagine the look on your attending's face when he pulled up the labs and saw a creatinine yep. of 7? I'd that, be calling for dialysis. On that somebody. person would go right to the ICU yep. for dialysis. Uh, in addition to you know getting on the kidney transplant list, I'm, I'm totally <laughs> checked. You know, So then they would check a urinary creatinine. And be like, oh, why is this thing through the roof? Oh, uh, must be the creatine. Yes. Yeah. That damn creatine again. Um, yeah. It's actually a more interesting thing that like 25% of all new military cre- uh, recruits take creatine supplements. So, you know, what if they got in a car accident, they got came into the hospital, had a, had a chem panel drawn, and their creatine's through the roof. Well, what would you do yep. about it? Well, you would read my paper. You would, yeah. You know. So, in yep. any event, uh, what would yep. I do about this? I would stop bodybuilding. Because uh, Why? Uh, I would also, I, I don't know. I I would stop so, taking creatine three days prior to your lab draw. And, and uh, uh, a week is the real washout period if you really wanted to, you know, get on top of the stuff. But then you also wouldn't train with weights uh, for about three to four days prior to prior to getting labs drawn. And, and yeah, that's and actually suspect- some, sorry, that's actually something to bring up too. If you're gonna go get a a metabol- uh, uh, some labs drawn, it is if you train right beforehand you're going to mess it up. And I don't mean mess it up like in a way that your doctor, I mean, your doctor is going to be like freaked out, but you're just not really know what to do with it. Right. So for instance, your AST and ALT are going to be elevated. Your liver enzymes are going to be elevated because they're mitochondrial enzymes. You have breakdown products. So that's going to be elevated. Your CRP. So it's a marker of inflammation. is going to be elevated, but what are you going to do about it? You don't know why, or you have a reason for why it's high, but you don't know, is that always been there or is it from training? Um, your creatinine may be elevated as well. So the point is, if you're getting labs to monitor health, you can't do it after training. Yep. And that's, that, basically, that basically covers the other part of his question, why is ALT is probably elevated. It's pretty uncommon to have an isolated elevation in your ALT. I suspect your AST is also probably up, and you're probably the remainder of your, of your liver enzymes are not really affected, which would be my suspicion. And that's probably a result of the muscle, the mitochondrial issues. You're probably trained the day before or the day of your lab draw, and that's probably contributing to that. All right, moving right along. Alex loves deadlifts. Uh, lower back pain in deadlifting. More specifically, his new localized uh, spelled with an S. I think it means he's from across the pond. Uh, <laughs> it's new localized lower back pain, mostly when deadlifting, but also when squatting and benching uh, when he's getting an arch. Recently had my hips realigned at the ch- chiropractor's office, but not improved. Um, that is, that is shocking. Can I just say, you didn't have your hips realigned. Yeah. Your chiro didn't do anything, bro. Well... Well, uh, you know, I'm not so bold to suggest that nothing good happened. I'm sure he feels better. Neurophysiologic mechanism. I'm sure you feel better, and the economy was stimulated, so... He even said not improved, man. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. <laughs> All right, so hips maybe still out of line. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'll answer this, and you can answer this. Um, yeah. Straightforward. 
you have new localized lower back pain, mostly in deadlifting. And so I, we just need more history. And so is this the first time this happened? Where is the pain localized? Um, so the, here's the general thing. So low back pain, right? Let's quick and dirty on low back pain because I can't answer this question. And I don't think you can either. Just we don't have enough information. But if someone has low back pain, we want to know, is it new? Have you ever had this before? If so, when you had it before, how did it resolve? Right? How did it go away? Did it just go away after time? Do you have any red flag symptoms? Red flag symptoms include numbness, tingling, shooting down your leg, loss of bowel or bladder function, right? Numbness and tingling in your perianal, perigenital, the genital area, stuff like that that's getting worse, right? Saddle anesthesia kind of kind of symptoms. If you have any of those, don't don't tag us in an Instagram post. Go to the emergency room. That's where <laughs> you need to go, okay? Um, if you have a slight back tweak after deadlifting and you've had it a few times before and it goes away in a few days... Don't worry about it. anything that goes away in a few days. It's fine. Most it's stuff does. Unless Most stuff pain. does. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless it's chest pain. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, and and I don't mean to joke about this, but it's like if you have one-sided lower back pain that doesn't have any red flag symptoms that you know you've had previously before, it goes away. Don't worry about it. You yeah. Train. You still train. This really applies to all the uh, pain questions that we get. People ask us like, oh, my wrist hurts when I squat or my elbow hurts when I squat or my back hurts. You know, it's like we just can't answer this stuff. Uh, the best thing to do is to give us a more detailed history and we need to see how you lift. Like this could be a technique issue, could be a load issue, all kinds of things could be going on. But keep work, it, work around it as best you can. It'll probably go away. It's probably in your brain. Yeah, that's true. It's a super tentorial problem. Yeah. Next. Oh, R-I-T-V-I-K-N-L. I think it's Ritvik, Netherlands. Uh, I have very tight... Oh, shit. That first thing's an I. Again, with the space. <laughs> there you go. I have very tight hips and hamstrings, which is why I experience significant butt wink, and it is impossible for me to deadlift with an arched back. How do you recommend going about fixing this? Just from the jump, you don't have butt wink, okay? You're setting your hips too low because somebody coached you improperly and i'm going to say it's a crossfit gym because they're the only people who use the word butt wink okay so what you need to do is you go back get your money back because they fraudulently took your money under the guise of good coaching now they tell you you have a butt wink which is also probably not true unless you're squatting incorrectly but i don't know because i haven't seen a video of you squatting here's the deal read the starting strength book that's how you should deadlift and if you can't set your back doing it that way and you've seen a coach then we can talk about it that's a good question Okay, but this thing tells me you're squatting, you're starting with your hips way too low. You don't know how to deadlift anyway. All right, so that's that's how I go about fixing this. Uh, read the starting strength chapter on deadlifting, and if you can't figure it out by yourself, see a real coach. If you can't see a real coach, post on the starting strength coaches forum, and they'll fix it for free as they can. Okay, yeah. the next part of this: most stretches I do hurt behind the knee, irritating my sciatic nerve. So my stretching progress has also been very poor. Good, good. Stop stretching. Stop you don't have tight hamstrings. Everyone's hamstring stretches hurt when they do it behind the knee, and you're not irritating your sciatic nerve. You're pulling on the insertion of your hamstring, and that's uncomfortable. Look, stop stretching. Stop doing Ramwad. Stop doing the pigeon pose. Stop opening your hips. Stop all of that. It, none of it's helpful. It doesn't increase your range of motion. It doesn't improve your performance, and it costs you recovery time. And training time. And, and money. And money. There's an opportunity cost there. Guess what you could be doing to actually get better? Squatting, pressing, deadlifting, cleaning, meeting a girl, food prep, sleeping. All much better choices than yes. any of that silly bullshit. And you have to pay for them. Okay, moving on. 
Selvin Pacquiao. That's not true. Selvin Pacheco. Drizzy and lightheaded when training <laughs> fasted. Oh, you think he said dizzy and lightheaded when training fasted. Why? Because you're fasted. Yeah, eat something. Why are you training fasted? It's like, this is the question. Hey, I'm giving myself no advantages to get stronger. <laughs> what should I do? Train first thing in the morning, fasted, right when you roll out of bed. Get dizzy and lightheaded during your sets. And Fail. it's maybe 90 minutes into this, and you and I have gotten a little snarky. The whiskey is maybe, you know, altering our, our sense of, you know, uh, altruism. I've had to train first thing in the morning before. I get up, I throw something down my gullet before I go train. Uh, yeah, so if you got to train first thing in the morning, you should do one scoop of whey or 10 grams BCAAs, something like that. A little bit of carbs, you can do uh, some quick oats that you don't have to cook. You can just put them in your, with your protein shake, slam them down, or cereal mixed with your protein shakes. Pretty tasty. You can do that. Um, and a little caffeine and a little fluids, and you'll be good. Don't train yes. fasted. It's, that's it, man. That's it. Hey, thanks for joining us. This has been the second podcast, Barbell Medicine. Uh, next time, I believe we're just going to do a question and answer. Because we got a lot more questions, and we'll try to have answers, uh, some nuanced stuff there. So if you could give us a like here on iTunes, that would be great for us. Follow us on YouTube because uh, we're putting out more content. And anything that you guys want to hear about, leave in the comments because we want to do what helps you guys the most. So for Marvel <laughs> Medicine, I am Dr. Feigenbaum. Thanks for listening. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, roll, talking myself out here. So Dr. Baraki here. See you guys later. (laughs) Signing off. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening.